A Kentucky church is in all kinds of media hot water for doing all of the right things regarding church membership. I want to talk about how broken our discourse is. And, of course, we will do the weekly sports wrap. That and more on today's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Three, three, that is three days in a row if you're listening live on Christian Talk 660 WLFJ that you have had me talking to you in the morning. Been filling in this week on Christian Talk 660's morning show, Christian Worldview with Tony and Hannah. Uh, And when you are a host that typically just does a one hour a week and you host four hours of radio during the week, that is a Rob Peter to pay Paul situation. Where all the things I would have otherwise said on this show, I have already previously said, or at least it seems that way going into into this episode. In any event, thank you for being here. You can get the show on demand for those of you that are listening to the podcast later. Thank you for doing so. You can get the podcast at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, lots of different places to listen. I hope you will share it with others. Like the show. If you would, review it where it's possible. Always helps others find it as well. My name is Corey Truax, helping secure the blessings of liberty since 1986. I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at Greenville High School in downtown Greenville. We'd love to see you any given Sunday morning at 1030, downtown Greenville for Beachwood Church. And hey, speaking of church... That's where we're going to start today. I think this is the most interesting story of the week to me. I understand there's headlines everywhere regarding the president's lawyer and trade wars. There's There were headlines you could get into. But being a, a theological mind and caring a ton for church, you know, and all of the different areas of church study you can do or theological study, the one I maybe enjoy the most, I have the most interest in, is ecclesiology, the study of the church, the doctrines regarding the church and the role it plays in the Christian life. So I want to get to this story, and maybe even more instructive as to why we're doing it. I am picking up the theme I've had for a while, but now really getting to articulate it more often. I think if we are going to be a functional republic, or if we're going to be a functional culture, We do have to start thinking deeper about these two things, events and people. So you might have heard me say it to Nathan McDowell, who joined me, I think that was last episode, uh, the the secular, the young secular leftward guy. As we were discussing things we disagreed on, and maybe the podcast bonus, I talked about my favorite Eleanor Roosevelt quote that I talked about this week on Christian Worldview with Tony and Hannah as well. Uh, that it's the, the small-minded people talk about people, the medium-minded people talk about events, but the big-minded people talk about ideas. And there's certainly a place to be talking about events, maybe even there's, a, there's some place to talk about people, but the ultimate goal needs to be getting to talking about the ideas behind the stories. And so while the story that I'm about to tell you is of interest, way more important than the story are the ideas, the doctrines, that lead to the story. So with that being the theme, here we go. The church is called Cave City Church. It's in Kentucky. It is about 90 miles north of Nashville. So Nashville, Tennessee, you start going north, you're going to run into Cave City Baptist Church there. In the middle of this month, they sent a letter to about 70 people that were on their roles as members. So how, whatever their process was to become a member of Cave City Baptist Church, these folks had gone through it. Now, these 70 folks 
were no longer attending that church. They were not involved in any way at Cave City for some period of time. It's not made clear how long, but it's, it is implied that it's years. And so Cave City sends them a letter that says, you know, here's what you signed when you became a member, that you're part of the language they use is you signed a statement that talked about habitual attendance, so coming to church regularly, giving regularly. That's part of what it means to be a member at this church. We've not seen you around, and so I want to let you know you're, you're, not, you're no longer on the church roll. We hope that you're living a, a spiritually fulfilled life, that you're a part of another church somewhere, and our doors are open to you at all times. So that caused some controversy. There was some guy who apparently had not been to the church in years and years, which at some level to me, this church made a mistake by letting it go that long. I mean, of course the guy shouldn't shouldn't have been on your rolls if he's not been in years. He might not, shouldn't he maybe not even should have been included in this letter that you sent out. It's obvious he's not of you. But the uh, the young the guy that got the letter uh, put it on Facebook and he was outraged. Outrage, I do say that he would be removed from this church role. And there was all kinds of Facebook comments. It's been shared a ton. And it, it became a occasion on social media for some church bashing because the culture loves to bash the church. Sometimes we have done what it takes to deserve it. This just happens to not be one of them. So that's the story. Here's the church with these members on the roll. At some point went through a process to become a member and are now in no way involved, and so they say, hey, we're removing you from the rolls. That's the story. That's the event. But what are the ideas? What are the ideas behind the event? So first, did this church do the right thing? I would be interested in your uh, opinions. I'd be glad to hear it. You can contact the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. You can also email the show at Corey.Truax, Corey.Truax at NGU.edu. But to me, this is easy. Of course they did the right thing. They're not church members. They're not part of that local body of believers. They don't show up. They're not contributing to that body of believers. Well, of course they're not members. What do you think that means? This shows a great deal of, let's go with ignorance, a lack of knowledge of what it means to be a member of a church, what the doctrine of church membership is. And so really quickly, I just want to talk about church membership. Because what is behind the story, the idea behind the event, is church membership. And how do you see it? How do you see church polity playing in your life? Now, if you're, so if you are listening to me and you are a Christian, I want to go ahead and say this with a lot of clarity. There is no such thing as the Christian life lived outside the local church. It doesn't exist. There is no biblical example of that, of you living the Christian life as a lone ranger. The Christian life is meant to be lived in a community of believers. You cannot have the accountability. You cannot have the encouragement that comes along with the Christian life without other Christians having that role. I would say this to you, Christian, if you are not involved in a church, you are robbing some church body of some gift, some ability you have by not being involved in a local church. It is certainly biblical. So church membership is not not optional, for the believer, that is, there, there is no example in the Bible of a, of a Christian being out on their own in the Christian life. But it's also a biblical thing. Here's how I know. Because you, I've heard the argument, well, you know, church membership is not is something that the, that the denomination is made up, local church is made up. It's not a biblical thing. Let me ask you a question. In 1 Corinthians 5, oh boy, I could be wrong. I think it's, I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. 
Or uh, we can also go to Matthew 18 on this. When Paul is giving directions on church discipline, and Jesus is talking about when you have a problem with somebody, you go one-on-one, and if you can't solve that, then you take elders or you take some other people with you, and if that doesn't work, then you tell it to the whole group, you tell it to the, to the church. When Paul does the same thing, hey, how do you tell it to the whole church if there's not a church that you're part of? And when th- that's also the, uh, I think it is for 1 Corinthians 5 for church discipline, the method whereby someone would be excommunicated. How can there be excommunication from a group if the group is not a necessity? Right? So it is an implied doctrine that if you're living the Christian life, you are living it in a community that you are committed to, and that community holds you, holds me accountable. It is not an option in the Christian life. It is not, uh, and it, so it's not an option. It's also totally biblical, which tells us that church membership does need to mean something. It's not your Netflix membership. It's not your gym membership. There is meaning to being a church member. We need you. There is something you do. There's something you offer. And it may affect it may affect one other person in that church body. Sometimes it is just encouragement. As an elder in a church, can I tell you something that's terrible? Summer. Do you know how much I hate summer as an elder in the church? We were I was at a meeting of Baptists this week because I, I know how to party. And uh, we were meeting at the Greenville Baptist Association executive committee meeting, and there's a church planner there who has planted a church here in Greenville. And he made the joke, and a room full of pastors all got the joke. It was a big laugh, big laugh line. He said, we survived our first summer because summer's about to end, and they made it. You know why? Because no one's there. Everybody takes off. There's always two, three, four families out on vacation. There is that great feeling in mid-September when everyone's finally back and your whole church family's back together. I actually know of one church that just shuts down in the summer for about 10 weeks. It's not quite Memorial Day to Labor Day, but it's a couple weeks after Memorial Day, a couple weeks, uh, and then it's the Sunday after Labor Day. Uh, they shut it down. They just shut it down. We don't have any... They do, they do nothing as a church. There's no Sunday school. There's no discipleship. There's no services because they just know. No one's coming. We're going to come here in a quarter... One third of our people aren't going to be around. And so you just coming, do you know how much of an encouragement you are to that leadership that are going to go out during the week and do ministry uh, as, as you are just going out and earning a living and hopefully living up the gospel in your workplace? You're just an encouragement to others. Church membership is something to take really seriously. It is not, it's not even supposed to be this transient thing. It's a big deal. Like it's in in church from town to town, it should be a giant deal to you to switch churches. It's a bigger deal than switching jobs. Why? Because here's my last thing on church membership. It isn't optional for the Christian. It is biblical. It means something. It means something deep. But church membership is also how you accomplish God's purpose for you. Here's something you know is true instinctively for your own life. If you have something you are trying to accomplish, starting a business, you set some kind of fitness goal, some endeavor you have undertaken, you cannot do it alone. You need help. You need support. The purpose of the Christian life is certainly to become more in the 
the model of Jesus. You're following after Jesus, becoming more, more and more like him every day, every week, every month, every year, you hope, in sanctification. But certainly you were given a mission statement by Jesus. Go ye therefore, make dis- preach the gospel, or make, make disciples of all nations. Not just, not just convert them, but make disciples. And teaching them more and more what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That is more of a mission statement in your life, Christian, than what you're trying to get to, the number you're trying to get to in savings so you can have a healthy 401k. Whatever your goal is in life for your family, whatever house you're trying to buy, whatever it is that you think your life goal is, your actual goal was not given to you by you. God gave it to you was to go make disciples. So, if you're going to do that effectively, you cannot do that alone. You have to partner with those that have other resources, other skills, and other abilities. You've been given a purpose on this earth, and it has to happen in a local church. If, you, if you're not part of one, Beachwood Church, 1030, Sunday mornings, downtown Greenville, Greenville High School. We'd love to have you there. We'll be back with more of the Corey Truax Show in just a moment. Welcome back into the Corey Truax Show. Connect to the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. It's always appreciated when you like, share, listen to the show. A question on which I would love your response, and then I want to talk about our our discourse, our broken ability to talk with one another. Here is Here is the question. I was recently in a public place. It was a restaurant. Well, a coffee shop. And... There was a very loud, uh, hysterical baby, like probably less than one, I would say, that was being totally ignored, ignored by his or her, I don't know, mother. So the question is this, in a public setting, what is the appropriate, the socially accepted time limit you let a child scream in public? There's different time limits for different settings. And being a non-parent, I would love to know the, the thought the thought on this because my uh, initial etiquette is just courtesy. I don't want to be an inconvenience to other people. Therefore, where uh, I have my kid that I love but is being disruptive to others, I'm thinking about other people. I'm not just thinking about my kid. And I think her ethic, the this, this situation I was in, she had the wrong ethic. Like she seemed not, to, she seemed not to care at all that hey, other people exist and are affected by this. And I'm a super patient person. I don't, I'm not really bothered by kids crying, but incessantly over like a like address it in some way is what I wanted to to say. You know, it's different again, different in different settings. For example, the to- amount of time you should let a baby cry in a movie theater is 0.7 seconds. The moment it begins. You should get up, move it on out, because that's, you know how expensive movies are? Too expensive. And you're affecting other people. Uh, hearing the movie is a very important part of the movie, right? Uh, so, like, that is, the uh, th- that, that noise in a movie, you move quickly. In a coffee shop setting, restaurant setting, in a grocery store setting, very different. That's, people are transient, getting in, getting away from you anyway in a lot of those settings, that's, it's just a different situ. It's a different situation. Uh, as again, going back to church, we talked about in the first segment. I am unbothered by babies crying in a service. You know, even at Beachwood, we have a 
an ethic about this. We don't want to separate families in worship. We don't want kids worshiping differently from their parents. We think their parents should be their first disciples. We would love kids to see their parents in worship, how they behave in church. And learning, and so we, we do kids' discipleship at a different time because we want families to worship together. That's an ethic we have. And as an inevitable consequence of being a church with a lot of young families, you're going to have babies cry from time to time and get taken out to our child care service. That doesn't bother me at all in a church setting. You know, you know what a lot of churches don't have? Crying babies. Because there's nobody, because the age group that that church has, and I, well, I love our seasoned saints. And church is made up of those seasoned saints. There's no babies in those churches. I will take a crying baby in church just about any time. But it's about courtesy to me. And what I was seeing from this other person was, uh, I I will sit here all day and you you can all revolve around me because I'm the center of the universe. And so I would be curious if you have a response. Uh, You can Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Corey Truax or email Corey.Truax at NGU.edu. What is the appropriate amount of time? to let a baby scream before removing yourself from a situation. Speaking of screaming, that seems to be what we do in American discourse. I talked about this earlier in the week, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago on Christian Worldview. I do a lot of shows to remember when I talked about a thing, uh, but if you happen to miss it or just want a, a reminder of what we talked about, then here we go. I remember it was uh, Josh Kimbrell's show. Like, it's just, just this show. I did the 5 o'clock show for Josh. I did 7 o'clock shows for uh, 7 a.m. For, for Tony and Hannah. Now I'm doing my own. Plus, I speak a lot in public. I don't remember when I talk about stuff. And so if you missed that version of the Josh Kimbrell show, here's something I want to bring to you now. I saw an article over last weekend from the Washington Post that I really enjoyed. It was about our broken discourse, something I'm very, very concerned about, that we don't talk to each other very well that we see each other as people to defeat. We don't even look at another person who thinks something differently than we do and think, I would like to convince them. We just think they're a moron, they're evil, they must be destroyed. And we never even thought, hey, I wonder if I could convince that person. We're just past that. Justin Amash, member of Congress, or maybe former member of Congress, he tweeted out this week that his colleagues, I guess that means con- Congress people, they see politics as a winner-take-all battle between good and evil. and Every word of that matters. Don't just brush over that language. They believe it is a winner-take-all, so if the other side wins, I am utterly at loss. It is total destruction for me and everything that I love. It's a winner-take-all battle. This is a war. It's not a discussion. It's not a conversation. It's not discourse. It is war, and the loser will be utterly destroyed forever. It's a, he said his colleagues think politics is a winner-take-all war between, this is again very important, good and evil. That person across from me, that person that does not think the way I do, that person is evil. They're not different. They don't have a different set of experiences. They don't uh, maybe just have a, a, a broken logic. They're a bad person. I can have nothing to do with them. They're evil and I must defeat them. You can't do anything with that discourse. Something I have very little interest in. I have very little interest in defeating the other side. I sure would like to win him over, though. This is, I said this on the show, Dr. Beam show on, uh, and Hannah's show on Thursday. 
I don't even know what it means to beat the other side. Does it mean to make them electorally irrelevant? Like they just can't win elections anymore? I, I guess that's the best thing it can mean. Because I tell you, in other countries, beating the other side means a very often means very dark consequences. And it feels like sometimes the way we talk with each other, we are looking for those dark consequences of defeating the other side. But back to this article from the Wall Street Journal. It was by Walter Sennett Armstrong. His title was, To Get Along, We Need Better Arguments. And I talked about that for an hour on, doc, on uh, Josh's show. As a, as It's really instructive that we tend to dislike each other because we don't trust each other, and we don't trust each other because when we hear the other per- person make an argument, it is a bad argument. From the right and the left, there's a lot of really bad arguments out there. Very emotional, not rationally thought out. There's a lot of bad thinking. And this article gives you some steps to making your arguments better. For example, he says that first step in improving the quality of our arguments. And you need to have that interest. If you go, well, I don't want to make bigger, better arguments. I just think all, all these people are idiots. They need to be defeated. Well, fix your thinking. right? We can't be a functional republic if we are not trying to improve our minds, even from a Christian perspective here, part of, what, part of what you should want to cultivate is the gift God gave you in intellect. God gave us brains to work on. We, it's something to subdue. We don't want our brains to rot. We want to, to develop them, to use them well. And the first step to improving our dialogue, to improving our arguments is to stop, this is from his article, is to stop thinking about our arguments as fights or competitions. It's a really good point. The the ethic is something Nikki Haley talked about here recently at 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 a speech. The ethic out there now is to own the cons or to own the libs, to make the other side look bad. And so when you go into that argument, when you go into that discussion, it's not for discussion. You do it for the audience. You know, this is what happens a lot in social media. The, the points that are being exchanged to one another aren't actually being addressed to each other if you get into a disagreement in social media. You're actually making the point for your audience. You want the other people reading to think of you as smarter. You want the other people reading, the audience that you think you have, which a lot of folks, by the way, you don't have an audience. No one's reading your responses. But the... That that's what what you're doing it for. You're not even talking. You're not even talking to the person. You're not even doing them the courteous, the cur- the courtesy. You're not doing them the respect of talking to them. You they are now a pawn. They are now a setup for you to look good. And so we don't even go in curious. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'll just take the estate tax or the death tax, however, whatever term you prefer. I know I'm right about the death tax. It is an immoral thing to tax someone their entire life. And then when they die, if they're going to leave a big inheritance to their kids, that you tax all that stuff one more time. That's immoral. It's wrong. I know I'm right. Hey, but for those that the, those that support the death tax, I sure would be curious as to why. So why do you why do you think that's okay? And what do you think it's solving when you tax someone's inheritance like that? What is the what is, what is it that you think you're trying to solve? I'm, I'm genuinely curious. That's another quality we could all benefit from, being curious about what the other person's point is. So, one way we can make our arguments better 
because you know we don't like each other, but one of the reasons we don't like each other is because we don't trust each other. And the reason we don't trust each other is because everyone makes idiotic, stupid arguments. So one is is to stop thinking this as a competition. Number two, be candid. Be be honest with be honest with your points. From the article he writes here, if your goal in arguing is just to stir up people who already agree with you, you might be happy to use rhetorical tricks. But if you seek to improve your own understanding of a controversial issue, it's better to state your premises clearly, admit your assumptions, and spell out each step in your argument. Man, that's a good point. There is, I think we do talk past each other a little bit, where we, we make the assumption that the other person knows all of our inputs knows where we're coming from, knows all the things we know. we got to be better at, it's got to be humble, humbly and calmly explaining, here is how I came to my conclusion. I will give you another example. You come to me and say, you know, some lefty comes in here and says, hey, I really think we should have these four, five, or six environmental regulations because global warming is, uh, or climate change is going to be such a problem. Uh, it's going to affect us for decades and centuries to come, and it's really going to wreck things, and so we need to do these things. So I'm going to lay out. I mean, I, I can either come back and we can fight and talk about how you, about how you, don't understand the environment, how scientists have had many things wrong for many years. We can do all that. Or I come back and just say, all right, well, here's my framework on how I think about environmental regulation. I want to be good stewards of the environment. However, for any policy that you propose, there's certainly going to be a cost to it. I want to weigh that cost versus human flourishing. So, and also effectiveness. We'll even take the effectiveness. So you tell me we want the trillions of dollars it would take to turn all of our public transportation fleet into uh, was it battery powered okay so effectiveness so you're trying to stop climate change right you're trying to stop carbon emissions okay cool so did you know just cuz here's my premise my premise is just this uh, even the people who did the Kyoto treaty said America could shut down its transportation system as in no cars no planes no trucks no trains literally nothing travels here and you would slow what you are calling the effects of climate change by about six or seven years. I believe that was it was less than ten years. So you're going to buy six or seven years by doing something catastrophic. Like you're not even proposing shutting down all of the transportation. You're just saying the public transportation system going to this uh, g- going to this type of energy. And so just to be candid with you, I, I-, I want to be a good steward. But what I'm telling you is I'm measuring your solution and it doesn't actually get you what you want. And just setting up the premises that way. It's doing it respectfully, doing it calmly. It's very helpful. So don't see arguments as a competition. Be candid, be clear, and then be respectful. This is his third key to making our discourse better and having better arguments. Again, something people are bad at, especially on the Internet. But I'll tell you something. Keyboards make people brave. There are folks I have met in person. They're delightful. How kind are they? And then they get behind their keyboard, and they want to disagree with me on their keyboard, and they get super brave really quick. This is something I know I could do better. I, 
I, I used to need a great deal of improvement. I think I've improved a good deal on the respectfulness of the opponent, the person who thinks differently. But the tone of our discourse is often that you think the person who disagrees with you is ignorant, is lazy, is just generally a moron. Listen, I, I'll admit, I, I treated core Trump supporters like that during that campaign. I was so exasperated by them, I treated them like they were lazy. I treated them like they were ignorant. I'm sure all of us on every side of every debate, there are people who are ignorant and lazy. But i got to start making better assumptions of people and be respectful. So I, I always want to give the mea, cul- mea culpa when I've done the wrong thing. I've not done a great job of that in the past. I want to do better. And if we're going to improve our discourse, we've got, we're going to have to be respectful of one another. Number four, how to make our discourse better and have better arguments. Be patient. This is a, a, a problem. Again, social media has caused this the most. But here's, here we were for years thinking, if you can't make the point in 140 characters on Twitter, now it's 280 characters, then it's not a point worth making. And so no one and what that did was teach us a lack of patience. We didn't have a we didn't have patience to learn other points. Because if you can't make your point quick, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm bored with your point now. This is where a, a skill I've been working on. You know, I had I had the gentleman on the the show here recently, Nathan McDowell, and worked on as we were have as we were talking, working on that discipline of I'm just going to sit and listen. Really, not not start thinking about how I'm going to respond, but really listen to understand. And sometimes, because I am a fairly, uh, I am impatient generally, but I'm also a succinct communicator. I try to get from A to B as in as few words as possible. You know, J- Jim Lee, who's going to be hosting for Dr. Beam on WLFJ, Christian Talk 660, on Monday morning. He's going to be in for him. He said in a Facebook post of mine that I say more in an hour than some people can say in two hours. And he's saying it funny because I talk too fast. But I actually do think he means I say more things because I do it succinctly. I can make more points because I'm trying to maximize every word. Now, some people don't do that. They are happy just to hear themselves drone on. They love the sound of their own voice. So that's part of being respectful, the last point. The last one will be respectful. Hey, be respectful of other people's time. Make your point. Make your point and be quiet. And this, it reminds me of, uh, what was, uh, that's from The Office. Yeah, Kevin. Kevin from The Office. If you've not seen The Office, probably the best comedy in the history of TV. There was, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, they were having a discussion on whether or not they should use their surplus to buy new office chairs or to buy a new copier. And Kevin, he's like the dumb character on the show, takes the floor, and he says, on one hand, and then he gives some benefits, and on the other hand, and he just keeps droning on, and then he actually stops and smiles and says, everybody's listening to me. And he just wanted people to listen to him. He just wanted to hear the sound of his own voice. And so part of being respectful in discourse, in disagreement, in argument, is be concise, be respectful of other people's time, but hey, don't let the Twitter world, don't let the Facebook world, don't let the fact that, uh, I think I saw a study here recently that said if someone saw the YouTube runtime, like they looked at the YouTube video that was going to teach them a thing or discuss a topic, if they saw it, it was four digits, so more than 10 minutes or more than nine minutes and 59 seconds, they'd click off immediately. 
Just the idea that if I can't learn it in 10 minutes, it's not worth learning, which is an insane way to be. I, tr- I tried to explain this to my nephews with some regularity. I try to say it to college students at North Greenville University, and especially high school students who are about to start college. Most things that are worth having are worth working for. There are a lot of things you can get easy. They're probably not worth having. But the things worth having take a lot of work. And having better discourse, having better conversations, which does mean this, having a better culture, having a better country, that's worth having. It's just going to take work. we got to be patient with each other. So, if we're going to have a better discourse, if we're going to like each other better, trust each other better, we've got to have better arguments. And we do that by not seeing conversations as competitions, by being candid and honest, by being respectful of each other, and by being patient with each other. Can you work on that today with, with me? I know that I need to work on it too. We could all use some work on how we are having this course in America. And if we don't, guys, I don't know how much longer we have as a republic. we got to start doing better on this. We'll be back with more of the Corey Truex Show in just a moment. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Corey Truex Show. Thank you for sticking with us. We're going to finish up here talking about one story from the news this week, just a headline. I hope to get to the idea behind the stories, because, again, that's the goal. What are the ideas behind the headlines? And then, of course, we will do sports. The probably second most traffic story, maybe the first most traffic story this week in news, especially cable news, talk radio, all that, was that Michael Cohen, President Trump's former lawyer, for some crazy reason, taped conversations with his client. That is not normal behavior. I mean, add it to the the list of abnormal behaviors we have no, noticed out of that world, that part of the world, in the last three or four, or last last three years or so. Just a couple quick thoughts on this, and really, I guess, more to the reaction there too. The facts of the case, if you somehow have not heard, the the lawyer Michael Cohen has a tape that suggests I would. Uh, I should probably use stronger language than suggests that shows that during the campaign, near the end of the campaign, Cohen and Trump had a discussion about paying, uh, his last name is Pecker, David, David Pecker, uh, paying David Pecker, the owner of the National Enquirer, to go to Catherine McDougal, which is one of the many porn stars with whom Donald Trump has had sexual relationships. This was an actual, seemed uh, a more ongoing marital uh, adultery. He was married to Ivanka, or excuse me, not Ivanka, married to Melania. Melania had Baron. After Melania had Baron Trump, the son, Donald Trump carried on a relationship with this former Playboy playmate. And because there was some uh, idea that Catherine McDougal would go talk about it and it might hurt the president, uh, that's what they were going to do, is that Cohen was going to set up a corporation, use that corporation to pay Pecker. Pecker was going to go to McDougal and buy her story, because that's a thing you can do. You can get someone to give you give the National Enquirer the right to tell the story. Only we can tell the story. And they did that. That is not illegal. Of course, there's the, like, the ethics of it, but it's not an illegal thing to do. 
To me, it's again weird that he has the tape at all. But that's the fact of the case. That's a thing that happened. Uh, the only other, I guess, part of the news to it is that the President of the United States had already denied this. He had denied uh, the relationship with McDougal or if there had ever you know, been any kind of payoff. I don't even call this a payoff. This is purchasing the rights to the story. And so that's the facts. What you do with the facts, it's really up to you at this point. I think you probably know my opinion on what to do with those facts. I had a caller on Dr. Beam's show who talked about accountability. When is anyone going to hold anybody accountable? Uh, you know, what we talked about earlier about fixing the discourse, it's, it's one of those things that you have, you have to put the cart back in front of the horse. So uh, when are you know, Democrats going to hold people like Hillary Clinton accountable for their behavior, and when are Republicans going to hold people like Donald Trump accountable for their behavior? Well, before we can do that, before we can actually have those discussions, we actually have to go back and fix the discourse. And here's why. Both sides, so the the Democrat looks at the right, and they see destruction. They actually do see that. Like it's It's weird to me that both sides see this. They see if the other person has political power, life on earth could end. Like they could actually disband the country, raiding marauders, going across the hillside, rape and hangings and guillotines are all coming back. Like, it's just, the the world will fall apart. It's dystopia. And so, when you, when you think that's the consequence of the other side having power, then you will do anything to maintain your power. And so, that's all that's happening here. I think a lot of folks on the on the Trump side, they look at the alternative, and it's just, well, the alternative is so bad. I already knew this about the president. I mean, it's, it's not like I'm surprised. I mean, for real, even the most, like, hardcore Trump person, no one saw this story and went, I'm shocked. Never could I have imagined that the president of the United States would be involved in such, in such activity. No one was surprised by this, okay? So, everybody can chill a, a, a little. Now, I think it should matter, but... This is an important concept here. God, you have to live in the world that exists, not the one you want. And so, while I live in this world that doesn't really care about these things, well, what do I do? And if you care about these things, what do you do? Well, you go back and you try to get people to care about these things. Right? So, you have to start back on the discourse. And I think that's one of the things we have to dissemble. We have to disassemble the fear of the other people and then we can get people to, to start restructuring their priorities. I think that's that's the way you got to move you got to move forward on these things. One more thought on this and we'll move on to sports. This is also a good reminder as to why we need to remind people uh, you want government to be less powerful. It's a point I make often. If you are so terrified of who's going to be president, you should maybe care about who's president, but maybe even more Ask yourself, why am I so terrified of who's going to be president? Maybe that person shouldn't be so powerful. That new, no matter who the president is, they should not be able to affect my life in such a way that it terrifies me. And so the idea behind the story here. So the, we, the president has a past. I think he has a present that's troubling, but he at least has a past that is morally reprehensible and it's got all kinds of issues there. And so then you got the folks that, I can't believe there's not more people that care. Well, right now they feel threatened. 
right? Actually, I saw a quote here recently from someone who, uh, in either Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, one of those typically blue states that went red for the president, they said of Hillary Clinton something that is true. They said, I just feel like she hates us. Well, she does. If you're just a middle class, you know, earn, earn the paycheck, you're hoping on Social Security one day when you retire, she does hate you. To be clear, she so does. And so you have folks who thought, you know, she hates me, and so I have to not care about these things because they're gonna. this person is such a, a threat to me. And it happens on both sides. So you have the, the idea behind this. Yeah, yeah, he did some bad things. That's the reason why people don't care. And we're not going to be able to get people to care until we go back and fix the fear people have of the other side. And then that other big idea behind it. Maybe the government should never be so powerful that you're utterly terrified of who's in charge. Maybe go to the core and weaken the government, make the government weaker so it can terrify you less. Okay, uh, we'll be back with another new edition of all the, the politics and the news of the things next week. Remember, you can get the show on demand at SoundCloud, on CoreTruax.com, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, all those places. But let's go ahead and move on to sports. Welcome back for the weekly sports segment with Heath Powell. Hello there, sir. Hello. So uh, we are a month away from football returning. Right. It's college football returning. Yep. And then uh, five weeks from the NFL. So I think it's start. It's time. It's time, man. It's fair to start thinking through. Finally. We've survived summer. Yeah. And you should be patted, <laughs> a pat on the back for all the football fans out there that somehow made this through. Uh, so here's where I want to begin. Um, we always start thinking about college football uh, even in August, you're thinking about what happens in January. Right. So, of last year's four participants of the college football playoff, Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Oklahoma, of those four, who is the least likely to return to the college football playoff to you? Oklahoma. Me too. Is it just because of Mayfield? It's just, just because of that, but I, I don't see another scenario where Georgia and Alabama both make it back again. Um, that was a perfect storm right. last year, and I Good. thought they both deserved to be there. I did. Um, I just don't see that happening again this year. Yeah, I I don't think yeah you could certainly see that two of them don't return. Hey, it could, it could be all four. Right, it could be a whole whole four new ones. Yep. But Oklahoma lost more than just Mayfield. Right. I actually suspect the Big Twelve winner this year. We'll get into maybe this in, pre, in uh, preceding weeks. I right. think West Virginia. Right. Is going to be that Big Twelve winner. It could be, and you know Oklahoma State's good, but they lost Mason Rudolph, so that's I don't even think they're on anybody's radar really. Mm-hmm. They do have the high powered offense, but we are talking. Big 12, so everybody has yeah. that offense. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I could get open uh, right. against a Big 12 zone defense. Um, okay, so then outside of uh, the least likely to return, of those other three, uh, Oklahoma, excuse me, not Oklahoma, Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, who's most likely to return? I think it's got to be Clemson. They basically return the exact same team they had last year, except all the young guns are more mature. They've got a year in the offense. I mean, the defensive line is back, who nobody saw happen plus their schedule lines up um alabama and georgia you know can knock each other out of it yep and now i'm not saying alabama won't be back because they probably will because yep. they are every year but i'm just saying uh, they just have the <laughs> clemson just has the easier route right yeah it's uh say it this way uh last year mm-hmm. i said to you expectations for clemson fans that the expectation needs to be a new year six bowl not a playoff right this year if you're not expecting a playoff you're probably expecting too little yeah i think so they, they should be there when you look at that schedule i agree uh, okay, then I want to give you some of these teams from last year's final top 25, and you tell me if you think they're uh, uptrend, down, downtrend from okay. last year. Ohio State finished at five. 
Is this a team on the rise, about going to stay the same, or going lower for Ohio State? Down for me. Down for Ohio State? I think so. They did. They finally lost that quarterback that's been there for 35 years. Yeah, they did. But <laughs> to me, it seems like Ohio State's been hanging on by a thread ever since they won the national championship. I mean, they, they're squeaking by. They're winning, quote-unquote, lucky games. They're, you know – it just seems like to me they're they're not there. And when they have come up against the premier programs, oh, they're getting slaughtered. Yeah, like uh, they're not even scoring a point. Not just even Clemson, but there's a reason Mayfield got a uh, Baker Mayfield got famous for playing that flat. Right, because he went to Ohio State and kind of owned them. Yeah, uh, Central Florida has to be on the downtrend, right? They're on the downtrend. Lost yeah. the coach. Yeah. yeah, and it's I hate it for her, but it's just true. It's just true. Uh, at number at number eight last year, Penn State finished at eight. Is this about where you expect them to be? Yeah, I think they they're probably even. Okay. Uh, I think they could win the Big Ten. Team that finished hot last year. Yeah, they did. Is uh, and this one also finished right. hot? Is Notre Dame finished at eleven? Yeah, I th- I see them taking a step back. I'm I'm going backwards with Notre Dame. Okay, uh, Southern California. They uh, finished number twelve last year. Man, they are that conference is so hard to judge. You just really don't know what you're going to get. I mean, you don't know what Oregon is going to be. You don't know what Washington is going to be. You don't know what USC is going to be. You don't know what UCLA is going to be. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going with them backwards as well. The uh, the Southern California is one more year under this coach. Uh, finishing at 12, I, I think they, they could be a top 10 team. I, I, I project them more as top 20, top 15-ish. I don't see them as a top 10. I could be wrong. I mean, Here's uh, a really good question for, for the fan bases around here. I like Mark Richt. Mm-hmm. I just love this guy. Miami had a decent year. And then ran into a real team in the ACC championship game. Miami had a decent year because they didn't play anybody. Yeah. They're, you know, the, the stupid turnover chain choked them in the end. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and as a as a person, I really like Mark Richt. As a football coach, I think he's severely overrated, and here's the reason. Even back to Georgia, you, you win, win, win. You get into a game, you have to win. They cannot do it. Yeah. He has historically not won the games he's, he needs to win. You're just speaking truth there. Like uh, it's that's just, it's not a personal attack. It's not because I'm a Clemson fan. It's just how it is. You can look at his resume and go back and watch highlights, and he just doesn't win when he should. It's just the record. That's it's how just it, the record. How it is. Uh, this one, I think, hurts us both because I think we both had a place in our heart for Oklahoma State, but I think they're about to be yep. a shell of what they were. Oh, I think it's already done. Mason Rudolph was too dang good right. to, to replace easily. Uh, I do. I don't care about Michigan State or Washington. How about this one for locally finishing twenty sixth, just outside the top twenty five? Was the South Carolina Gamecocks? I yep. think they're uptrend this year. I don't think you ever know what you're going to get with them until they, till they prove year after year that they're only uptrend. Yeah. Um, I'll call them even the, for me. So a top twenty five, but right there on the edge. Right. Maybe the, top thirty ish of the top twenty five. Right. Uh, that's the thing about these college. Uh, because here's the thing with with South Carolina, you know. They they're projected very high usually, and then the year they're projected very high, they really stink, and the year they're projected very low, they they end up doing pretty well. Yeah, the I think it's hard to handle expectation if you haven't done it before. The I've, this going into a season, it's fair to say that there's really only a very small subset of teams that could possibly win a national championship, right? Right. I feel like this year it's three. It's gonna be Clemson, <laughs> Alabama, or Georgia, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And whoever that fourth team is, I could see it being Ohio State. Maybe it's finally a year where someone's one of these little, like, I don't know, not, not, not Boise State, but right. one of those teams like them sneaks in. The Group playoff. of five, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because there seems to be two programs that are head and shoulders above everything else. Yep. 
comes to Alabama. And then Georgia's coming up. Yes, I feel like they're, they're, they are another Georgia tier. has the same formula that Alabama's had that Clemson has now for the past five or six years, and Georgia is headed that direction. Yep. I uh, agree with that, yep. The, the two – I guess two questions. The, the question for both of these top two powers is still going to be quarterback. We're all on the same page that Kelly Bryant's starting for Clemson, right? Yep. Yep. Is it – I think the question comes in, how long will he hold it? Yeah. Well, and he, he may hold it all year. Oh, good coaching question for you. But you go through the Furman game. Yep. You win it. You go through the Texas A&M game, A&M game and you win it. I think the next one's Georgia Tech after that. And you're winning them. Yep. But you're winning them on defense. Mm-hmm. How long are you willing to win with defense before you go, we have too much talent not to activate it? Uh, this is, you know, it's eerily reminiscent of Cole Stout, sure Deshaun is. Watson at when, when we were playing Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, Deshaun Watson goes in, leads the drive, throws one of the best touchdown passes I've ever seen on the college level, and he never goes back in the game. Yep. And Clemson loses. Mm-hmm. Now, if that happens again, <laughs> I, I, and I'm a Kelly Bryant fan, I don't think anybody could have stepped in after a player like Watson leaves and takes you back to the playoff. Um, but this is a new year. Mm-hmm. These are new kids. There's new talent. Yeah. Um, if you have an all-world quarterback, now that's a, that's a lofty projection. But he could be that. Yes. And you don't know that he's not that, so you can't disprove it. If you have an all-world quarterback sitting on the bench, how do you not play him? To me, it's four games because the season's 12 weeks, so I'll give you one-third of the season right. to show me you can release the ball, get it downfield, activate the entire offense. Yep. Not Plus the- now you can play four games and still redshirt and save a year. You make a great point. I forgot about that. So Yeah. so It's not like you're hurting yourself. I mean, I, I, maybe you don't say it out loud to him. But right internally as a coach when I know what I have sitting on the bench show me that you can activate this offense yeah and after four weeks if you can't let's try let's try yeah let's try the other guy and see if yeah I agree and plus there's so much talent on the edge there's so much talent in the backfield the skill positions are reloaded again mm-hmm. um he's obviously going to get a lot of time against Furman I would I would think uh the Texas A&M game we'll see what happens but we will come back next week and start maybe projecting some of these right. conference winners, um, all five of those conferences. But thanks for giving us some time this week to talk sports. I appreciate it. We'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week on sports. We'll start getting into college football conference projections. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.